Hey, Greg. Hey, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you great. Let me just adjust my levels here. Uh, make sure we're not blowing each other out. Well, at least I'm not blowing the recording out. There we go. Okay, let me start my broadcast here. So uh, as of this point, we will be on the air, but uh, it is so informal, it is not even funny. But you should know that already. <laughs> yep. No problem. Have you heard any of the shows ever? I mean, and I will not be yes. insulted. Oh, really? Huh. Yes. No, I, yeah, no, no, I've got you down as, as a subscriber. Oh, okay. Excellent. Are you okay for a couple of hours? Like two? Because yeah. we can go, we can go yeah. longer or shorter or whatever. That's fine. I'm sure we will run up right to the edge of the time. Oh, yeah. I asked you before the show, what, uh, what is your uh, musical choice for the outro? Everybody, all the good guests get to pick. Yeah, I, I mentioned something about, I don't know, maybe it didn't go through or something like that. I thought Spirits in the Sky. You ever heard that? Uh, I think so. I'll probably recognize it if I pull it up. I, I, you know, if I don't have it, I just pull it up on YouTube, of course. No, that's all right. Well, that, I thought that would be kind of cool. Uh, it's They have it playing in Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, ah. that, you ever heard that or not? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, okay, I know um, that one. Yeah, Norman Greenbaum. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I do have that. It is ready to go when we get to it's the end of this talk. Hmm? It's, it's a catchy tune. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I do. I do know that one. In fact, I think they've played it. Uh, it is in the uh, music list on Coast. So every once in, a, once in a while, I actually have to enter it into the uh, to the music list for the evening. So, yeah, I am well familiar with it. Ah. And, and before that, too, obviously. Let me play the intro here, and then we'll start in on the interview here with uh, Rich Hoffman. Thanks so much for joining uh, me today, Rich. I'm looking forward to it. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need to go f- through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit a domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, go conditioned here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, 
Can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? Hey, it's Radio Mysterioso here for. Well, let me turn that off. For. Um, what is today, Rich? It's the 24th of March, right? Can you believe it already? <laughs> After uh, uh, it's what was it? the the uh, conference was last weekend, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, it was last weekend, and I can't believe even yet today that uh, that this has been a whole week. That's uh, it seems like a month ago sorry. or something. Uh, I was lucky enough to be able to attend the first uh, conference of the Scientific Coalition of Ufology, of which of which Rich. Hoffman is a board member. I don't think you have an actual like chairman of the board or anybody in at the top of the pyramid, right? It's just a board, right? Yeah, no, it's just a we a group of us that are like we're considered to be like executive. There's three of us that are executive officers because our like our names are on all the like you know the articles of incorporation and that type of stuff. But right, we have, we have a board member or a board group of about eight people, and we you know no one of us are like the chairman, if you would per se. But. Yeah, uh, there was a questionnaire that went around at the end of the conference, and that's one of the things I asked. And I think you knew it was my question. It was, uh, you know, are you going to, is your group going to be, or is it organized like sort of like a MUFON where there's like a head honcho that has the final say in everything and sort of, uh, and can vote down everybody, which I think is probably a really bad idea in any organization, especially a UFO organization. And two, um, if you were going to keep it uh, fairly small, meaning you're not going to turn into a a giant organization with state uh, sections and all the other stuff like the other big uh, groups have done, you, you weren't really planning on doing that, I don't think. No, we're we're not trying to replicate MUFON at all. Uh, you know, our 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 goal here is largely just to be able to um, be a. In fact, you know, we don't have membership per se, right? Uh, and we don't have like you know state chapters, or we don't, and we're not looking to even recreate you know investigators in all states or anything like that. We're a, we're we're basically looking at ourselves as more of a coalition of uh, agreed upon, I mean, like partners, if you would, or people that are, they're going to go off and do whatever they still want to do. But we're just, you know, we're, we're a coalition or a group that basically kind of like believes that scientific, you know, study of the phenomena is needed. And we're all willing to work together and come together and work on like on project basis or something like that. So we're, that's pretty much what we are. And, and we're not looking to go out and, you know, hey, everybody out there report their UFO sightings to us or something of that nature. We're not. That's not what we're about. Right. We're we're going to we're going to take the tough cases and work on them for a long time and add the science to it. So that's where where we're at. OK, maybe I should introduce you. I guess you said to you, um, I could probably use your <laughs> bio from the uh, the uh, handout. There's a long bio here. I'll try and shorten it up. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Just- yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. I mean, this was this was written for people to read at a conference, not for a, to yeah. introduce somebody on a radio show. You but know, it, it's tough. It's tough to write something short when you've been doing this for 55 years too. Yeah. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Rich Hoffman's a. It's been in Army Information Technology, a defense contractor for 25 over 25 years. Senior lead architect working with the U.S. Army Materiel Command headquarters at Redstone Arsenal, Huntsville, Alabama, which you took us on a wonderful tour. 
Cool. Yeah. Shaping the future directions of systems, networks, and hosting arrangements uh, used within the Army for the past 55 years. See, this is one of the questions. How did you get into it, Rich? Um, (laughs) Since his eighth grade science class time with Lonnie Zamora, citing on on April 24th, 1964, Rich has been pursuing his primary interest in investigating, researching, and lecturing on the subject of UFOs. He even had the opportunity to lecture to the Air Force at Wright-Patterson about UFOs. Really? When did that happen? Oh, that was a that was a trip and a half. So, I mean, I was about probably maybe like 17 or 18 years old. And I had been all around Dayton giving lectures. I mean, I gave lectures even when I was like uh, probably about 14 years old. And I started doing lectures and then I got on Phil Donahue at age 15. (laughs) And then, then the next thing I know, I was like, you know, I was like on this regular circuit going around and and then some of the uh, the people at the base had heard the, that I was doing this. And uh, uh, the next thing you know, uh, uh, well, so they asked me to come out and to speak. And so I did a presentation to a, a group of people down at the Foreign Technology Division area. You right. know, of that, that right, right around. And so that was kind of wild. Uh, <laughs> I had an in- interesting experience that. And then uh, and then I would be out on doing my cases uh, around the city of Dayton because I was getting a lot of phone calls and stuff like that. And then, uh, I'd go out and then there would be a blue book guy on occasion that would be sitting there maybe doing the same investigation. (laughs) So, so then I, I, I connected with them and eventually we exchanged information. And then later on I was, I got to meet, uh, with the blue book, some of the blue book people, including Hector Quintanilla. But, um, and then uh, I was given uh, a a telephone number to call for radar approach control. They call it RAPCON huh. uh, at uh, at the base. And so I could, you know, if I was doing a case investigation, I could call up and they would be able to confirm that there was something in the air at that time. And so that was kind of neat. You know, I, w- I started to have that. And of course, you know, right after that, Project Blue Book closed down, and so it was uh, over and done with pretty quick. But um, that's when I got involved in MUFON, which well, it was still in the Mutual UFO Network, or Midwest UFO Network at that time. Right. Yeah, so, uh, and then I went on from there. Right, okay. I, I will continue some of this bio because I think it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Previous positions within organizations such as MUFON, Field Investigator, State Section Director, Section Director State Director, Deputy Director of Investigation and Star Team Manager and Director of Strategic Projects. Mm -hmm. You also work for the, I guess this is when you were around there near Wright Pat, Ohio UFO Investigators League Incorporated and Ground Saucer Watch, which is legendary. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty neat. You got to talk with, uh, dealt with Bill Spaulding a lot. And, you know, that was about the Travis Walton time period. Oh, okay. And and, uh, GSW was doing a lot of uh, photo analysis I, guess, I think they were doing it at JPL, uh, and huh. um, and so yeah, I worked with with Bill on that for just a short period of time. Yeah, uh, let's see. Also worked with Heineck, uh, Major Quintanilla, yep. Quintanilla, Donald Quixote, Stan Friedman, and Len Stringfield. All yeah, Len, Len, especially Len was in Cincinnati, and I was in Dayton, and we were always connecting with each other uh-huh. a lot of times. So I got to know him pretty well too. So. And then Heineck was always giving lectures, and I'd go to some of the lectures around Dayton, Ohio. Like he gave one at the the Engineers Club in Dayton, and I went, and that's when I first actually got to see him. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And it was, it was that was pretty cool because 
even at that time, he was doing some of those presentations about uh, the data that, that they were coming up with were like, you know, good example where uh, UFO sightings were uh, in the northern hemisphere seemed to be around the period of July. And then uh, you find out in the, in the southern part of the planet Earth, uh, you would think that that would be it. And also in summer. And no, it turned out to be in the middle of their winter. <laughs> so it was like, whoa, that's pretty interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I he did a lot of those kind of presentations around town, and it was very fascinating. Uh, uh, what was your inter- interaction with uh, Donald Kehoe? Uh, Kehoe I got to know, and in fact, I got to in, in, invite him to the conference that I had in 1978, uh, and he was the lead presenter, uh, or one of the lead presenters we brought back, and Wanted to hear his thoughts, you know, uh, and, and I had a, uh, a conference in Dayton, Ohio, was attended by about, you know, 3,500 people. Yeah. So it, it was it was one of the bigger conferences that I've ever seen a move on. So. Oh, so you're a veteran of uh, putting on conferences because this one went, you know, yeah. smooth, well-oiled machine, I thought. Um, yeah, I, I was pleased with this one. Uh, it was certainly not 3,500 people, but uh, but anyway, it was definitely much more intimate, and which is what I wanted. I wanted to have it collaborative, and I wanted to also raise the quality of the, uh, the people who attended. Um, you know, and initially I was, I'll be honest with you, initially my f- complete thrust on this whole thing was not even to have you know, UFO, ufologist, if you would, it was, it was about trying to get the base personnel here to now open up and engage about the subject of UFOs. People and, at Redstone, you mean? Yeah. People at Redstone, you know, I was just trying to get them off the base, which is why I had it right outside the gate. Yeah. And it was, it so, was literally, so, I mean, you, you drive out of the parking lot yeah, and it was right yeah. th- within like 10 seconds. You're at the gate. Yeah. So the, again, the gist of it was to try to get them interested in this whole subject, you know, and, and see if they were willing to talk and, and consider it. And uh, the the unfortunate part about it was that um, this was right at the time when the government shutdown happened. So happened half of the base people were gone, out, yeah, and gone. And and then I was realizing, well, wait a minute, I have a minimum of people that I have to have to have this restaurant open. They're not normally open on the weekends, and so. Mm. I kind of we kind of decided to open it up to allow more serious, you know, researchers uh, and ufologists, to, if you would, to come in. But but again, the original intent was to try to see if we can get, you know, them to open up and have a conversation now, you know. So, yeah, because I, I was that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you. I mean, how do people react? Because people at work, you work at, you know, you work for the Army um, yeah. in uh, uh, IT. Yep. And um, they know people in your office know your interests. They know your history, and it's like, how do they react to that? Because you told me you have UFO posters in your office and things like that. Oh yeah, my cube is pretty well decorated in in UFOs. But I mean, I you know they've always known that. I've, I've been with them for like twenty five years, and I've never hid it uh, at all. In fact, to me, it's there's no reason for me to hide it. You know, it's just I have an interest in it, and everybody's entitled to have an interest in something. Right. You know. And, uh, hey, you know, this is mine. And so I've, uh, I've that's been also to my advantage to, to in some respects because I've had a lot of 
you know, military type people that will, you know, come up and tell me their interesting stories. So uh, they know that I will listen and they know that I, you know, hear what they have to say. And so, you know, I'll hear uh, about, you know, people that were out at uh, Area 51 or I'll hear about people that uh, were at other, you know, parts of the country, if you would, and had their own experiences or something of that nature. And and so it's been rather interesting in that regard. And then uh, because I work in the IT world, I'm able to I'm able to be a you know, I'm working the same part of the organization that handles the FOIA requests. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I get to, to see how that whole FOIA request process works and stuff like that. But um, yeah. so, I, you know, and then, you know, the other part of that is I've interacted with a lot of the R&D type of people and, and that type of thing and got a taste of what we're doing. And uh, I can certainly work on the classified and the, uh, the, the systems and stuff like that. And I, you know, I'm always intrigued to see what's going on there. And and so it's it's kind of ironic that here I was in Dayton, Ohio, where Project Blue Book was. And, and, you know, if you look at where Project Blue Book was in terms of how it fit into the upper command, well, guess what? It reported to the Air Force, like material command, if you would. So so here I am, you know, kind of like dealing with the Blue Book people. And that would be the Air Force com- uh, material command, if you would. And now here I am working for the working for the Army Material Command. <laughs> so so it was rather ironic that I ended up there. And it, it's been a it's been really interesting and experience, you know, a good experience for me anyway, to be able to work there. But um, yeah, but they accept me uh, just who I am. And they're always asking. They were curious about the conference. And many of them actually wanted to attend, but they, they couldn't, you know. Yeah, well, maybe you can have another one because I, part of the reason for this, I, I think you told me, was to not only open up the conversation amongst the people you knew in the military, but also people in the scientific community who mm-hmm. would talk about these things, as Dean Radin says, in the hallway. And they, mm-hmm. you know, slowly it's going into the uh, into the lab or into the classroom or whatever you want to call it, where it, it or at the conference where somebody is officially talking about it instead of just standing out in the hallway and unofficially talking about it. Because you had uh, physicists there, like um, mm-hmm. uh, Kevin. Uh, how do you pronounce his last name? Knuth or Knuth? It's, it, it, it's actually Knuth. Oh, okay, Knuth. And um, yeah. and, and Conley Powell, and oh, yeah. well, for that matter, Travis Taylor. Yeah. And uh, it seems like uh, not only at your conference, but in other places, this is kind of opening up to less ridicule and more. You know what? We've been making fun of this for years, and maybe we should take a look at this in a serious way. Also, you know, the older generation is going away with that had that stigma, so maybe you know it, it's opening up. And I, I saw the SCU and the conference as part of that opening up. Yeah, and and so if if you just look at SCU alone, we have twelve PhDs in SCU. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so I don't know if you knew that or not, Greg, but we have twelve. 12 PhDs there. I knew you um, had some. I didn't know 12. I, lo- I looked at the uh, the, yeah. the, the uh, roster there on the w- website. Yeah. So we have a, you know about 40 people that are pretty serious-minded people, and many of us are, you know, I mean, maybe we're not uh, dedicated scientists and PhDs, but uh, the, the qualifications that we have in there are, are quite high and with more advanced degrees, and so it's, it's a good group of people, and and we're looking to uh, expand. In fact, uh, just to let you know, I think we've had now something on the scale of about 17, 17 people from the conference after the conference that want to now join. And we're, we're going to be going through and evaluating those people as well. But uh, so, I mean, 
SCU is is what I'm trying to say is that is a collection of more serious and scientific minded people, and I think a lot of them, you know, have have wanted something like this. They've been wanting to have a more serious conversation instead of the uh, you know, the carnival atmospheres and stuff like that that you experience in ufology in general. And the fact that we're trying to provide that, and of course the conference was about that as well, it was about how can we get serious scientists engaged and, and you know, would they be willing to come out and have a conversation? And, and you had to stru- we, had to, we wanted to structure it in such a way that would allow them to feel safe to do that, right? You know, and so, yeah. I mean, it, you know, uh, Part of the issues that I had all along with when I set this thing up was, well, how do I, you know, how do I get them to feel comfortable? You know, what do I need to do to, if you would, to manage that environment, if you would? And, you know, the other, the big part of it was, you know, when we made a decision to have Lou uh, Elizondo uh, come, uh, Lou was very big up front that he, he, he didn't want to become the focus of the conversation and detract from the science that we were trying to do. And so he was very much concerned about, you know, not having like, you know, ABC, CBS and all these other people like that wanting to come down and film him and detract from the conference. You know what I'm saying? And I, and I, I I appreciated his honesty and his integrity when he was like trying to say that because yeah, we don't want necessarily Lou Elizondo to become the, the, the focal point Although I'll be honest with you, a lot of people I think came because he was going to be there, and uh, yeah, nobody and, uh, nobody left him alone. I finally was able to talk to him on the last day in the last two hours of the conference. That's how long oh, it took wow. me to get to him. Yeah, so I mean, and I was just you know pleased that we could have him there because again, it was trying to to point out to the people that were in the defense world that hey, look, the Pentagon did have a program, and so here's a guy that's conversing and was the head of the program. So it's, you know, why aren't you coming and wanting to hear what he had to say, right? So uh, so that's one of the reasons why we, you know, we were glad to have him. And uh, and because it was... Well, he was, he was the keynote address, the first speaker, so... Yeah, well, I mean, our, but he wasn't originally going to be there. We had a Dr. Silvana Colombano, who was going to be actually our keynote. Uh-huh. And, uh, and he was the guy that was from Ames research that basically came out and, and said that he had written a paper and he mentioned in it uh, in his paper that uh, UFO instead of SETI we ought to be focusing on UFOs and, and the fact that there's like maybe something to it well I mean you know then it hit the new the news media went ape and crazy with it and the next thing you know is he's now like you know <laughs> castigated if you would because he was you know, dealing with the UFO subject and he's with NASA. Well, he had a lot of pressure and now he couldn't come. And here I am like, well, what am I going to do? I was hoping that he would be there. So uh, anyway, make a long story short, we ended up, I, I made a decision. It's kind of like, and we, everybody agree with it. Let's just go with Lou and see if he was willing. And, you know, and then when we got Dr. Hal put off with coming with him, that was a very clear indication that it was a very positive thing because Hal Putoff, you know, is science, and man, he wouldn't be coming to anything if it weren't science-related. So I was thrilled uh, beyond belief that he was actually willing to come as well, as well as having Lou at the conference. And so it, it turned, turned out really great, and I think people got a lot out of it. I think you, you probably would agree with that, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, I didn't re- exactly know what to expect. 
I was uh, I was pleasantly surprised at a lot of what, what well I wasn't pleasantly surprised I pretty much expected it was going to be treated seriously and uh, I enjoyed all the talks even even the one talk yep. that was about ninety percent um, formula of uh, of uh, nuclear rocket fuel yeah. <laughs> because when um, when Doctor what's his name Conley. Conley Powell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When Doctor Powell said, the, the, uh, "You say Doctor Powell, people think you're talking about uh, Robert Powell." Robert Powell's not doesn't have a doctorate. Yeah. This is a different Powell, Doctor. Con- when he spoke about uh, interstellar travel and what kind of fuel you might use, which I thought was yeah. highly interesting, he was dealing with formula about you know if you use these fuels, you use them efficiently. If they work the yeah. way they think they would, we should. And you know what would be the byproducts and all you know. And there's a lot of formulas for that. But yeah. when he got on the panel and started talking, you found out, one, he was extremely interested in the subject. And two, he's very funny. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Without a doubt. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. And had, you know, I had a history with the subject. I mean, he knew quite about a lot of the history. I sat at the table with him. We, we talked yeah. a bit about uh, some old cases. We talked about, you know, sightings. I think we talked about Zamora and a couple other things. So, Yeah, he, he was. he's quite knowledgeable and interested in the UFO subject. That was a... Uh, that was something that I learned about him, uh, you know, and and he is a propulsion scientist uh, out at, at the base. And so he's, you know, yeah, he's going to look at it very definitely into uh, the, the mathematics and, and stuff like that of this whole thing. But uh, I I was pleased, too. I think I was I was initially concerned because, you know, uh, his talk mathematically was probably over the heads of about 90 people, 90 percent of the people. But yes. Uh, but anyway, but he I he still made it interesting and he still came across very well. And like you said, he even had he was pretty funny, actually, uh, when he when he got to talking about it. And uh, so I, I, I think we learned a lot from it. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not going to question his math. And <laughs> yeah. But uh, but I, I do think that what he was trying to convey was is what came across and people got quite a bit out of it. So yeah. I, w- I was pleased. Yeah. Are you worried about kind of the media blitz atmosphere around TTSA and Lou Elizondo and having him there? And if that was a, was that something that you or anybody in the board were concerned about? Yeah, I think that overall, you know, see, we're we're I think we're like we're many people here. I think, you know. We've all lived through the long making announcements and, oh, this is going to come and, you know, and here's this rock star kind of guy. And the next thing you know is he's got an incredible group of people that are all attached to him. And you're going like, wow, I wonder what that's about. And so we, we didn't know what to make of it. And we you know, still kind of like don't. I mean, we're a little bit on the, the – we're a little bit confused, if you would. It seems like that there's a lot of the entertainment media type of thing and – we're like saying, well, you know, I think you saw, for example, uh, when we did our case reviews uh, for you, like um, right. the, the, the Aguadilla the, and the Nimitz. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we published our 162 page paper on the Aguadilla and then we're about to publish uh, the 270 some odd pages of the Nimitz. So, you know, you kind of like hope that maybe like TTASA has got is going to be publishing their analysis of the Nimitz or something of that nature, and you don't see it, right? I mean, we just we get little bits and pieces. We get three videos. We get a couple documents here, or there. We get a couple of interviews with with like you know Fravor, or and then right. we're waiting we're waiting for this this TV show now, and, and uh, that's going to be on History Channel in May, and mm-hmm. and and I think that what people are looking for are those like you know those analyses or those investigations and they don't see it. And, 
And so that, that's kind of like where we're at. But now we're starting to form a, kind of like a, a very significant connection with at least with Lou and uh, uh, as well as Dr. Putoff. And I think that we're trying to figure out and I think that they very much were impressed by what we did as a group. And I think that they're, we're looking to see if maybe there's a possibility of some sort of a, a cooperative arrangement or a, a whatever with them to help them if they get this kind of stuff to maybe do some sort of scientific analysis on maybe a case or something of that right. nature. Yeah, because uh, you, you asked me, you, you said yeah. that, there, that there was, a, I think they had reached out to you saying, would you like to become part of our organization? And I suggested that's probably not a good idea, basically because you sh- I think you should keep your independence. And you said, yeah, well, I think that's, you know, most of the board wants to do that. Um, but yeah, that, that, if you could possibly lend some sort of uh, uh, analysis of, uh, to them and have them use that publicly, I think that would, uh, would probably help their case. Yeah, and so that's kind of like where we're at. We're not wanting to be subsumed by TTSA, I guess is what I'm trying to say, is that we're, there's not like a, a merger or something like that of the two of it. Right. But we'll, we'll maintain who we are, uh, and and we'll just have some sort of an arrangement where maybe we can provide some sort of like uh, analysis or something like that, since we have a group of scientists, right? Uh, and it's not like – and so that's kind of like what – you know, a tip would have done uh, in their program. They would have gone out to like Bigelow or some other organizations, and they would have contracted, or or they might have gone to Jet Propulsion Laboratories or something like that to say, here's here's uh, some data that we got. Go and do the analysis on it, and come back and give me a report, right? So right. maybe maybe we could do the same kind of thing and and do on a, something on a similar basis for a, a case or something like that, and and. And then help uh, write up the report, which I think that they would still, you know, I mean, still give us credit if you would, as, as far as doing mm-hmm. that. So we have to look at that, and we're kind of kicking that around right now and, and having conversations. But I, I really think that what I saw there was that there was a, a very definite uh, connection that we had between at least those individuals in uh, uh, TTSA, and so we're going to explore it and see where that'll go, but. Uh, and I think that there's benefit to having, like I think you and I talked about before, there's a benefit to having different smaller groups doing UFO study, if you would, because. Oh, yeah, that's uh, been my belly, billywhack or ballywhack or whatever you want to call it for a few years now. Yeah. Smaller yes. groups are a lot better uh, equipped to, I think, look at this thing because it's not yeah. uh, a top down organization does not fit the subject in, in any way that's helpful because it is so squirrely and so. Um, yeah. There's so many different aspects to it. And if you get a big organization, it has one idea and this is what it's going to be. And um, that stifles creative thought in the, in the field, which I think is badly needed. Yes. And so where there might be a collective group of people that are focusing on something like, you know, it might be a whole bunch of psychologists or sociologists that are doing abduction cases or something like that. Right. You know, maybe that group ought to formulate, you know, their strategy of how that they could help uh, work and share. And again, to me, the, the big thing about this is not to create little stove stovepipes or little islands where they don't share. I think oh no no! To, the the idea is know, to share. Yeah. That's what yeah. the internet's there for. <laughs> well, exactly. And so we need to look at those cooperative relationships between people and to share. And one of the things that we're attempting to do is 
much the same as like what Dick Haynes did at NARCAP. If you go to Dick Haynes and look what he did, he focused on cases that were involving UFOs and, and airline safety or aircraft safety, right? Right. And, and he did all these wonderful cases and he, they were published and they were available on the Internet. Well, we want to do the same thing. And so hopefully, you know, maybe that can share with other scientists mm-hmm. and, and they can go out and they can do some work or whatever, figure it out or and. You know, and then somebody, somebody at some point is going to like look at the whole enchilada and see if they can make any sense out of it. But um, that's that's really what I believe that we need to kind of like continue doing, if you would, uh, for this phenomena. Um, n- none of us are the experts. Um, let me let me also clarify that over the 55 years that I've been investigating, I, I, I originally when I first got involved in this, I mean everything that went bump in the night. I've got a call about, you know, so it's like I, I, I was getting calls about, can you do my ghost investigation? Can you can you do this Bigfoot case? Can you do this or can you do these animal mutilation cases and that type of thing? And, you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, you can't be a master at everything. And certainly uh, what I do anymore, and it's always been this pretty much this way, it's like, look, if I get a Bigfoot case, I'm not going to I'm not going to do it. I'm going to go to a Bigfoot guy that's been research or gal that's been researching it and say here's your case you know right so uh, i'm gonna let them do it because they've been focusing a long time on it or a heck of a lot smarter on it than i am you know but uh so that's kind of like where i'm at uh and that's pretty much i think that the way we look at it is that we we don't have a need to do every case but we would like to be able to contribute to the cases that make sense where we do something and we have scientists that, that can help out and analyze data and and uh, put out a report and, you know, and go from there. Right. Part of the reason I think that uh, Morgan and you and, and Robert and a few other people are in uh, formed SCU was because um, they thought that uh, the groups they were with weren't addressing the issues the way you wanted to. And I, I noticed in your bio you said you left your position as MUFON director in June 2017. What was the reason for that? Was there a specific reason? <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit dissatisfaction that you develop over the time. The more that you get involved in, in uh, case investigations and you start looking at the reports like we did. So let me let me clarify that I you know I don't I'm still a, a benefactor. I'll, I'll be a lifetime member because I donated a certain dollar amount with MUFON, and I do wish them well. I do want them to succeed if if that's possible. Yes. Um, Again, it's, I, I agree uh, with you. I mean, I I, I would yeah. hate to see the I would I hate to see the way they are now, but I also hate to see them disappear because so many people. That's the only resource they have to be connected to right. the subject and do any kind of research and talk to other people about it and listen to other yes. researchers and all that. It's just uh, it's it's kind of broken in my opinion. Yeah. So I mean, you know, I was in charge of a lot of. I mean, I was like you know in charge of uh, the case investigations. I was in charge of like you know. Uh, uh, as a star team member, let's go out and find the, the, the best cases who would send the best FIs or field investigators we could. And, you know, and so that's the way it ought to be, I guess, if you would think about it, you know, the best equipped people you're going to go out and put on the best cases, right? The ones with scientific data and you wouldn't have done well. So we had a you know, group of people that were called the star team that were doing that. Anyway, the bottom line there for me was that, uh, and the value that, that, MUFON brought to the table or brings to the table, if you would, 
is the fact that you're they're helping to at least go out and get case data, which you normally wouldn't get. Right. And at the same and at the same time, they're helping to kind of like do that cursory level first look at it and say, well, wait a minute, we checked it out. It doesn't look like it's got a you know, it's like a bird or a plane or a, you know or anything else that's yeah, up there. Exactly. You know, and at least they're eliminating that that stuff that's the IFOs, if you would, at least to some extent. Yeah. Well, anyway, when Robert, myself, and, and Morgan, and a number of us were on what we called a case re- a scientific case review team, and what we did is we went every month and we looked at over, you know, like 600 cases to try to pull out the best cases. And uh, you start to look at the quality of the UFO reports that you'd see or how well they were investigated or you'd see dispositions and they're like calling something a a UFO and uh, when it was clearly, you know, just a lens flare, (laughs) you know, and, and and so, you know, then you say, well, wait a minute, there's a problem there with the data and, and the, and the investigation. Right. And you, and so you'd saw a lot of that and then you'd saw incomplete reports or you'd see, you'd see uh, just overall problems with how it was handled and, and you'd see the the sheer volume of these cases where we're not really getting the, the data that scientists want or need. Uh, so, it, you know, for a, a lot of us, it was kind of like frustrating to actually see that that was happening. And so, and, and my big focus was how can I improve the organization and how can I improve, improve things? And so that's kind of like what I attempted to do. Uh, I found out that, for example, there was a problem with evidence being submitted. It seemed to be that it, it would be shipped in boxes or something like that, maybe, and it goes to move on and it's put on maybe a shelf or something like that. But it, it wasn't getting to a lab. And then you find out, well, you know, if if MUFON did every box that they received that that uh, they would be broke because, you know, they're not equipped to be able to pay for all the lab time you know that you need so there's there were problems in the sense that maybe good strong evidence wasn't was being mishandled and so again that goes back to good training and and everything else and uh then you'd see that it was difficult for me to even get uh very good qualified uh, investigators in my own state of alabama you know and we just ran and around and around and around. It was problematic, and 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 I, you know, and then there were some personality conflicts that you know that were at the headquarters level, if you would. Uh, I ended up saying, you know, I'm gonna forget that. Let me go and see if I can help in another way. And then I moved over to being the director of strategic projects, and basically what that amounted to was. I, I kind of like defocused from the case investigation world and now I got into how can I help, you know, bring science uh, into the equation. And so I started looking at the technology tools that might be available for cases. Like if you have a hotspot, can you uh, have equipment deployed there that would help uh, to be able to capture information? Uh, and we started looking at like a whole variety of these deployable units and found out that there were a number of uh, people that were actually investigating them. Uh, Mark D'Antonio was working with Doug Trumbull on a, it was originally called UFOTOG, but I think it's, you know, it's changed since, but uh, that name, but 
again, it was uh, about having photographic equipment that would be placed out in a yeah. hot spot. And, yeah, Chris and, O'Brien's doing that too in the, uh, yeah. the San Luis Valley. Yeah, right. And then you have, uh, I think, Fran Ridge and a, and a number of others, and uh, that were doing something with yeah. Madar. Yeah, not to it, mention anyway, Hestalen and a few other places. Yeah. Yeah. So bottom line is that that's the kind of thing we need to be able to do is to improve more like the uh, the capabilities and get that out there. Well, that's one thing. Then you had a mixture of things that happened. Uh, uh, you started to see where, for example, in night in 2017, they decided to have, you know, Corey Good and a, and a whole bunch of other people go and <laughs> yeah. talk about talk about secret spaceship programs. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it's hard for me personally, and I'm, I'm just, a, you know, this is just me. Um, and then you had, of course, the Ventry uh, situation that came up and, and a number mm-hmm. of other things. And it, it just got to the point where it's like suddenly it looks like, you know, science is going down the wayside because not only are the, are they destroying the, the MUFON credibility there, I thought, uh, but they're also destroying I so too. my credibility. Right. Yeah. So because now I'm associated with them and, and I'm at that staff le- level where I'm now report, I'm, I'm week- meeting, meeting weekly with Jan and I'm on his key staff. And and so I would get conversations, you know, you can imagine here at the Arsenal and the people around here, they would be <laughs> like saying they would they would be like saying, like, you know, are you nuts? Why are you with them? And <laughs> do you do you believe that crap that's being said? And I said, no, I don't. Uh, it's not not who I am. And mm-hmm. I, I injected my comments about it. I thought it was the wrong move and, uh, right. uh, and completely, you know, pretty much dismissed. And, and I just said the heck with it. So I chucked it in and said, uh, well, I'm not going to go that way anymore. And, and then we also had pressure because we got this, uh, Aguadilla case. I was going to ask which, you about that next. Yeah, because, well, so that's, so that's an interesting story. Okay. Like, Yes. So okay. Let, let's let's uh, we've we've, asa- we've uh, established uh, the uh, the issue with MUFON, which is uh, it's good to hear it from different people who are high up in the organization and how unhappy they were. But you got uh, this this uh, video from some people in the um, Border Patrol, I believe. And what how did that happen? And uh, how did the case progress? And why did you you know, why did you pursue it? So what happened was that um uh, and this is what I know that happened because I, I didn't get engaged in this thing until like six months after it all had gone down. But first off, the, the case actually occurred like in, in April of uh, 2013, near the end of the month. It was the 25th. That's when the actual event took place mm-hmm. uh, in Aguadilla. And, and that involved a, a customs border protection aircraft uh, that that. Uh, out of Puerto Rico, and the uh, they took off from Rafael Hernandez Airport in uh, near Aguadilla, mm-hmm. uh, in uh, the northwest corner of Puerto Rico, and they see this object, and they record this thermal image uh, uh, movie of it that was about three minutes and fifty four seconds. Well, the gist of it is that what happened was that apparently at some point shortly after they got back. Uh, they downloaded it off of the, the equipment or something like that, and they started to eventually try to get it, see if they can figure out, you know, what the what do they do with it? You know, so they they made attempts right. to try to go up. They they tried to go up through their uh, 
to uh, Homeland Security and see what would happen. They also put it up, you know, and sent it up through the Air Force Intelligence Squadron or something like that. And anyway, they didn't get any kind of like response, uh, like they were anybody was going to do anything with it or that they were interested. Uh, they might have been interested, but they aren't, you know, they weren't going to do anything with it. So apparently, if you look at what happened, is that the flight crew that ha- that goes off down there is really based out of Miami, Florida, right? And 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 so they know other pilots that are still up in uh, in in Miami, and the the pilot who actually was on the aircraft apparently shares it with a a friend of his that he knows and trusts in Miami, and. And they basically put some sort of like, you know, rules on it. I'd like to be able to have it analyzed scientifically and I don't want it to go into UFO groups. Uh, and oh, by the way, uh, I'm going to check, uh, check out who the individuals are that are going to be are, are involved, uh, with this thing. And they actually did, you know, credit checks and everything else on us <laughs> to make sure that we were on the up and up right. and, uh, or, or, and then background checks. We, yeah, background checks, and that we had to do non-disclosure agreements, saying that we wouldn't talk about it, and so that was the only conditions that they had on us. And and so here I was, you know, or we were that we got started on it and pulled together a team, and we all had to sign NDA, NDAs. And uh, this was in Mufon still. Well, no, I mean it didn't go through Mufon. Oh, okay, so okay. It, it just landed in a bunch of Mufon people's, you know. Oh, okay, Bailey. okay, all right. So, in other words, Morgan, I guess, got it from uh, uh, an individual that was down in Florida who knew the pilot that was out at the base in Miami. And then he had started engaging it and got very shortly after the incident. Uh, apparently, then we eventually get a, a copy of it. Uh, and... So Morgan then uh, began reaching out to a number of people, and Robert Powell was one of them, and eventually I was uh, involved, and there were uh, Larry Cates was involved, as well as Paul, Carl Paulson. Carl is a physicist. Uh, Larry is a mathematician uh, and a, a great analyst, by the way. And then Robert Powell was the director of research for MUFON. And then, of course, I was like at one point, like I said, this the deputy director of investigations, and I've been around the field. And plus, I work for the military. I mean, in a military environment, so maybe I can help out. So the bottom line is, we just were having weekly meetings for like you know about a year and a half or so, and we were going through and eventually doing our analysis and writing up the uh, the paper that we had put out, and uh, we were allowed to to get answers to our questions through this pilot who would then work with the other pilot to get, you know, very specific details of our questions. Uh, we eventually got the, the make, uh, of the actual, uh, camera, the thermal imaging camera. Uh, and then I began doing my checks with, uh, you know, was it FLIR and then turned out to be not FLIR and it was actually West cam from L3 and I began doing to see what I could what I could do to see about you know making contacts with Westcam and seeing if I could get our questions answered. Well, you know, you know it's not easy to get you know somebody in a company to tell you about their product to the level that we were asking. <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, we're asking about the, everything about their camera, and it's like, who are you again? <laughs> what yeah. do you want? 
And, um, yeah, they're worried so about the, corporate espionage, so they don't want to well, give yeah, out you know I mean, specific specs on the camera. Although I yeah. would figure they'd give out specs, you know, like a customer would want, right? Yeah, well, we got those, but you know, again, it's like we were down into the the Nats Bippy. <laughs> oh yeah, like yeah, uh, you know what yeah. what what is the nature of the you know the the, yeah. the 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 capturing mechanism and what's the you know what is it a CCD right. and if it's not a, you know what what free, what uh, wavelengths does it look at and yeah. you know, all that. You you got it. Yeah. So it's like we, I mean, you get a group of scientists together, they're down into the nitnoid level of details, right? So I mean, oh, so. Obviously, we didn't get any cooperation from them. And then uh, here we are trying to do our analysis and, and see what we can come up with. And, and we were trying to, like, you know, identify everything from what are what capabilities, excuse me, what capabilities do we have presently that might account for it and and uh, and all that stuff. So so. OK, so then we published our report. And after we publish our report, it becomes known well, then MUFON wasn't happy, and uh, Robert and I w- were being looked at and kind of like questioned heavily by the, the board uh, of MUFON, uh, trying to understand why it is that we didn't have this thing go through MUFON. And we, we told them, frankly, this is here's what the problem is. And in fact, I clarified uh, to them that well, guess what? If you go into the uh, one of the cases that was reported to you, in, uh, and I gave him the case number in Puerto Rico, you'd find out that the witness did report it, and you haven't even assigned it to anybody yet. And this yeah. is like, well, like almost like two years afterward. <laughs> so, right. You know, so so it's like you know, okay, so you know, you had the report, you know, sent to you, and it's it was still sitting there unassigned, and it just. You know, that was an indication of the problem that you have. Plus, you know, uh, MUFON, you know, had a thing where it was like typically like 90 days you had to do your report. Well, we couldn't do this in 90 days. This is a very special project. So I think that, you know, it was a lesson for all of them uh, that, hey, look, you know, uh, that some cases warrant a longer look. And I'm hoping that they made changes uh, since I've left and stuff like that. And they probably have a like a team that's doing that, I guess, I hope. But uh, they've had problems ever since then. <laughs> and I think with scientists wanting to associate with them, uh, I know that Craig Cogswell, I guess, was the director of research at one point. I think he just lasted a very short time and then yeah. left. Yeah, he got uh, he, oh. he got disillusioned very quickly. Yeah, it didn't take him as long as it took the rest of us. <laughs> uh and then, uh, then I think then uh, you know they maybe they got I think that there's a woman now that's in it, and so I, I wish her luck. I, I hope that things work out, and I and I, I'm sincere when I say that because I think that you know, again I, I I really want I want them to improve and I want them to become more scientific, but that's their decision, and if they don't want to do it, that's so be it. But uh, we're going to go ahead with our scientific effort push and try to focus it that way and that's kind of like where we're at okay because uh, when i first looked at that uh video i said that's a that's a mylar balloon floating around um it still looks like a mylar balloon floating around to me um uh, but the movement of it across you know across the background um mm-hmm. that's not as much of a mylar balloon i don't think at least the way you described it to me uh the other issue i had with it was uh, and i talked about i talked to you about this 
yeah. was that there was apparent apparent movement of it, and that the speeds and all that was got it was determined by that apparent movement. But the movement, the the plane was circling the entire time, or at least most of the time, uh, in a big spiral. Uh, that you had a nice ground track that you showed when you did the uh, presentation, and then you showed the track of the object, and it looked like it sort of mirrored what the plane was doing for a while. And so I just thought, well. Isn't that just an uh, you know the, a result of the point of view of the airplane and the and the you know the mm-hmm. um, apparent apparent motion of it uh, against the background because the plane was moving? But you said one, you're trying to get a. You said there was a radar return on it. Uh, there was well, there was radar that happened on some object that was out in the northwestern part of the area, just off the coast of that that preceded that object coming in right uh and and so you know you have to make a quantum leap since the radar didn't actually track it coming in and then when it got closer to the airport its height was not sufficient for the radar that was up on pico de Estes up on the the okay. island and so uh when it when something gets below that radar it's not going to pick it up you know and and so you have that going on uh and so it's now you know you have to speculate that that's was the object that was out there and it was coming in and then you have the the situation where it was observed by the tower and the flight crew with a pinkish light on it and that's how they saw it at, at night you know initially and they they were concerned because it was coming into the airport uh, and that's the way that they saw it was coming in, into the airport, mm-hmm. and they they stopped a uh, FedEx plane from going off. Uh, right, that's in and, the video. Yeah, and so you have you have the control tower seeing it, and you have the aircraft seeing it, and then the light goes out. At which point, that's when they turn on the thermal imaging camera after they're doing their circle, and they do two circles. Right. But like I pointed out to you, when they finished that, they did the first circle, and then that was when they were watching it with the light. Okay, mm-hmm. which not when they when they got on their second circle that they turned on the thermal imaging camera, but they didn't make a complete circle. They actually made like a, a circle, and they were going. And then they went off straight to their whatever their mission was south, and the object they were still tracking it, and so you actually see motion of that uh, as it's moving along in the water. And then you have the indication of a splash that you see when you look at this in the, in a very, very close pixel by pixel, which then also, and then you also see it go behind a telephone pole and you can clearly see that in the, the frames as well. So it's not until you do the frame by frame analysis that you start to see more of that, uh, that level of detail and you can actually interpret speeds and stuff. But, um, so yeah, the, the, the funny thing about, you know, parallax, and I think that that's where you're trying to go is that, right, you know, right. or it, I, I called it a parent motion because I've seen this, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm a pilot and an ultralight pilot and I've seen this in action where I right. think so. I said, okay. you were circling me and my friend says, no, I wasn't. I was going in a straight line. It's just because I was in a, a tight circle and it looked like that's what he was doing from my point of view. And that's happened Correct. more than once. So, yeah. Yeah. And so, again, if you look at, uh, the, I think, the, the path that we came up with, we used a couple reference points for that, um, that we could 
we could work with that helped us to generate the path. Uh, and then the other aspects about it is you have to look at the fact that it was going uh, counter to the wind. Uh, and then the other, the other aspect of this is that if you look at, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but thermal, uh, in thermal world, mylar is, does not appear like that. In fact, uh, mylar is used to actually cover up the human body and so you can't see the thermal. So, again, it, you have to then look at the thermal signatures that you get off of this thing, and it has no relationship to anything like a mylar balloon. Mm -hmm. uh, and also uh, the, uh, you know, and so that kind of thing. And then you, then you have to account for the split, and then you have to account for the apparent heating up of that. Uh, then you have to account for the fact that if it was near water, why would you not, and it splashed, why wouldn't you see some sort of a temperature change and why would it get hotter if you would? So all those variables have to be looked at. Right. And so, yeah, I mean. Yeah, that split was the one that kind of made me cock my head and go, huh? Um, the funny thing is that when it splits, the, the image is exactly the same. It turns at the same rate, everything, as if there was some double image on the, in the, in the, uh, device, but the thing is, nothing else is double in the in the field of vision, which you would figure if you, if something was doubled in the field of vision. So right, and then the other the other aspect of that is that you know the waves are completely clear the whole time. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they're very they're very distinct that you can actually see waves. And some people were saying, oh, well, it's it's this or that. When it, for example, when it appears to be going through the, underneath the water. Uh, well, wait a minute, you can see the waves all the way around it very, very distinctly. So, I mean, I'm having problems with, uh, we're having problems with that. Right. So, again, you know, it's one of those things where we, we declare it as being unknown because we haven't been able to adequately explain, explain it. Yeah, every in, little in piece that's sense. in it, yeah. You know, and so we're looking for somebody to explain every little piece of that, uh, and maybe they will. And, and, and so uh, there's been attempts, people, you know, like that'll come up with, you know, well, it's definitely a, a balloon or something like that. And and they try to explain it that way. But, you know, if you take a look at what they come up with and explaining the all the different aspects to it, uh, it doesn't match up. Right. Their analysis is way insufficient. And so, but damn it, the thing does look like some sort of like half inflated balloon just floating along. <laughs> it just yeah. doesn't, you know, according to your analysis of it, it doesn't act like one. Yeah, and, and I don't know if you've ever done it, but I've, I've watched release balloons and winds. And when you have a 15 to 18 mile an hour wind, uh, they don't fly as nicely as you see in this thing at all. Mm -hmm. uh, they bounce from side to side. They go up and down. They, they're, they're doing all different kinds of things. And so, uh, you know, you might want to take a look at that. Go release one of these things on a 15 to 18 mile an hour windy day and see right. how nicely it, it flows. And, uh, and and they don't they don't do that that well. Mm -hmm. So uh, all right, well we we could talk about this for the next two hours, but we won't. <laughs> yeah, well we could. Uh, but, but again, well, I just wanted to get into sort of the nitty gritty of it because I know some yeah. of the people that are listening have examined it more than just kind of hearing about it. So yeah, uh, that's why I kind of wanted to bring up those issues and the fact that you know you you can explain. Uh, most things in it, maybe, but not everything, or maybe not even most things, according to some people. But um, until everything is explained, or at least the majority of the the uh, act, uh, actions and and what's observed in it explained, 
it should remain unexplained. And now that's actually something I liked about the um, conference. And I told you this part, part of my uh, review of the conference was, I think I heard the word alien maybe four times the entire weekend. Because the, the focus is there's something unknown here. We're trying to figure out what it is. We'll figure out where it comes from or who's doing or whatever some other time. That's not our job. Our job is to figure out, is this anomalous? And if it is anomalous, what does it exhibit? Yes. So, um, and I think most people can get behind that, uh, which is why you've had uh, more uh, scientists there. Oh, I had a friend that asked a question. Uh, he said um, that you were upset or somebody was upset that people had posted the video of uh, Luis Elizondo giving his talk. And you, you sent out a, a message saying, you know, look, uh, uh, we didn't plan to have these things videotaped and we didn't want them out publicly. And, um, you know, we're trying to get people to be less afraid of um, talking. Um, the fact that you can look up any of these people and see that they have sort of an interest in the, in the subject is, is one thing. And two, Usually a science conference, the, the, the information is open so other people can and see it. And, um, and three, if you do video, if something does get out on video, whether you shoot it or anybody shoots it, it's going to go out on the Internet no matter what. You can't do anything about it. So I was wondering, you know, one, what were the reasons for not having any video or recording? And two, will you be doing that in the future in, at the SCU conferences? So let's let me clarify that we had arrangements with the speakers that we were going to record this thing, okay? Mm-hmm. And and our intent is to be able to release it after we get it edited and basically you know make it presentable and oh that's and right Mor- Morgan was uh, was was uh, recording them I watched him doing it yeah yeah so we were recording it and our intention was to to release them and. And allow the uh, the speakers the courtesy, if you would, to be able to uh, to look at them and and approve their release, right? So, right. Uh, that's so any any kind of thought that we weren't going to do that is totally bogus. Uh, number two, the the situation was that uh, I did make an announcement. I don't know if anybody heard it about I did. not doing that. That's why I asked that, permission for, for to uh, do any, know, any recording and, at all. And, and, you know, and to me, it's like when you have, uh, you know, when we say about scientific conferences, the vast majority of the ones that I've been to don't have people doing that live streaming kind of thing that was going on. So right. the fact that, that you have now people doing that, that didn't ask in a courtesy way uh, of what, you know, can I do this? You know, can I do that? Yeah. Uh, after we even said that we don't want to have that and we're going to be doing these things anyway. So anyway, it, it threw I us see. off. It, it threw us off guard. And uh, and then what happened was I, I had a specific request that was given to me by Lou Elizondo to say that. And, and he just basically told me, he said, you know, I, I prefer if you not do the question and answer. He, he said nothing about his presentation, but yeah. but about the question and answer period, because apparently what he told me was that he had uh, shared personal information. Well, you know, OK, I respect that. Yeah. I don't want I don't want to have, you know, my, something I say that may be personal or something like that out there. And uh, yeah, and didn't you know, plan to have be public. Yeah. And so so anyway, I mean, and it's not like I was out there focusing on, you know, what everybody was doing with their cameras. Well, lo and behold, then after I make this statement to him, you know, that 
oh, by the way, we don't, you know, we'll, we'll do that on our video thing. We won't, uh, or we'll edit it and see if you approve of it or whatever. And then I go out and I find that there's a number of people who have done that, you know, that they've got it out there. And apparently the question and answer period, and apparently it might have his personal information. Well, I respect the guy and, and uh, I, I didn't want to lose him. I want him to be able to come back and feel like he can keep, you know, open. So I, I was distraught, you know, and uh, I happen to know, uh, well, both of the individuals that I'm aware of that did it. Uh, and I went, I didn't bother uh, Teresa Tyndall. I didn't, I didn't say anything to her, but uh, she had done that. Um, but I, I know Rob Freeman too. And Rob is a good, very good friend of mine. And I, and I asked Rob, I said, you know, Hey Rob, I, I saw that you did that. Uh, do you have, uh, uh, did you get permission from him or ask, you know, permission to be able to do that. And again, it was just finding out the courtesy. And he said, well, I think that he eventually he did go and get it and he sent that back. But Lou had told him the same thing. I would prefer you not have the personal information with on the Q&A. Yeah. And so I, I asked Rob if he was willing to uh, edit that out, you know, edit it out so that uh, that wouldn't be an issue. And and. I said, you know, hey, go back and put the, the, the presentation there and and post it up and, and say that you got permission from Lou. Okay. And um, yeah. so that's pretty much, I think, what he Rob did that he, as a courtesy. And I think, you know, he has a great deal of respect. And I, I didn't talk with Teresa, so I don't know what she did. But, you know, I sent that email out to all of you who attended. I said, you know, uh, yeah, I I'm, trying to, I'm trying to be respectful of of people and uh, what they want and we did record it we are working to get it out and uh, would you you know how do you do you feel comfortable about that you know and uh, I think I one of the things I pointed out was I said you know we were in close-knit quarters and how do you know that if somebody at the table was having a conversation whether that might be looked at is you know that they're now their private conversation was also being recorded. So. Yeah, they didn't they didn't sign a non disclosure. I mean a, um, yeah. a release. So yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, I, this is just being you know common courtesy, if you would, and trying to be respectful of people and and their wishes. And so that's pretty much the way I did it. Mm-hmm. So I now you know in the future, I think what I'll do is and, and again, you know, uh, we're we're going to be releasing these things that uh, I'll just make a point of telling people that, you know, that, uh, Hey, if we're going to do this again, uh, this is the way we're going to work it. And if we see people recording it, we're going to ask them not to record it because we're going to be releasing it anyway. And, you know, just making sure that everybody's real clear. Maybe I'll do it in the, uh, when they sign up, uh, or something like that. Uh, but that's, that's pretty much where it is. And then, you know, the thing that irritated me the most was, uh, you know, you got groups out there that are posting things and saying, well, you know, censorship happened at the uh, scientific conference. And like we were, you know, it didn't even focus on the good things we did for ufology. Yeah. It was it was focusing on us being, you know, mindful of people's uh, uh, being courteous to people. And uh, yeah, and they didn't even bother to check with me or or even to find out anything about what what we were doing or how it happened. And so now there's like, you know, uh, articles about us doing censorship and 
that's just not right. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not right. I, I I respect people and I don't respect them. You know, I respect people enough that I don't want to hurt them. And if yes. somebody if somebody tells me that they had personal conversation or personal information, then I trust them and I'm going to help them out and make sure that that's the case. But, right. Uh, okay. I, Lou did. Lou didn't specifically say that we even couldn't uh, have the question and answer period. It's just that it was more like, can we, you know, maybe edit it or maybe can we do something to get that personal information? And I don't know what it was. Again, it's I don't even remember what it was either. I have no well, idea. I, 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 you know, it's it's. I have no idea what it was, and I. Oh, anyway. I've, I've encountered this on my show where somebody says, Ugh, I said something I kind of didn't want to say during the show. Could you possibly kind of put yeah. take that out? And it's not, To me, it's not censorship. It's just, you know, I'm being courteous to the person because they gave me their time and yeah. uh, let me ask any question I wanted. So, you know, if they unless it's something I think is – actually, you know what? I've never argued with anybody about it, even no matter what it is, because if I got to take something out and if I think it's really important – Maybe I'll discuss it with them, but um, I've never had to. It's always like, eh, I wish I wouldn't really said anything about that. Or, you know, I don't want to get that person involved. Okay, I'll take it out. I don't mind. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's – and I guess, you know, there's all kinds of, like, laws. What you do in my state's different than other states. Right, exactly. And, and, and so you have to be mindful of that, that there are, you know, recording somebody is not from state to state the same and – Anyway, the bottom line there is we just need to be a little bit more cautious about it and to deal with that. And, uh-huh. you know, it, it also flies in the face of what my objective was, and that was to have, you know, people feel safe and comfortable about opening up and talking about the subject. So, right, exactly. Uh, you know, I wanted Lou to be able to feel like he could comfortably discuss things. Yeah. And I, I will say this much. That he, was, he was very informal with me. I mean, I was, I was actually yeah. kind of surprised. And I understand where people are at because I, you know, quite honestly with you, many of the question and answer things we had were very interesting. You know? Oh, they were great. I was going to ask you about those. Yeah. And so I think ultimately, you know, getting some of the question and answer things out is where we're trying to go. But we just need to do it, in a, especially around Lou, if there's personal information. But the other ones didn't have any problem with it. And right. uh, we're just trying to honor people's wishes. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other big case that people would probably want to know about, obviously, was the Nimitz uh, Gimbal thing that uh, Robert Powell and uh, who else was lecturing on that? Well, you had Peter Reale. Uh, That's we didn't it. actually fo- we didn't focus on the Gimbal. Uh, we focused on the on the, Nimble, the the Nimitz case only. But um, yeah, that Peter Reale and uh, Robert Powell kind of like presented some of some of the information that's in that 270 page paper that uh, we put together for the Nimitz case. Okay. Uh, well, what convinced uh, Powell and Reale and the other people on your board that it was actually worthy of study? Because because of the high profile of it or because there's enough information there or because there was a video or what, what was the criteria? Well, I think that, you know, there's a, there's a variety of things. When, you know, when you're looking for better cases, and I think I've, I've already said this to you a little bit, you know, the, uh, when you have metadata associated with it or if you've got like a video like a, a thermal imaging camera that has an, a, an interest to you because you know you're trying to find out the thermal images of these objects if you would uh, the fact that it was a, a military case and that there were a tremendous number of people that were on board that were starting to talk about right. it as well as you had Commander Fravor uh, uh, up there talking about it and 
And so when you start to see the that kind of thing, it, it you know, to a scientist, like, are you, you know, that's pretty doggone interesting sounding case, right? Uh, and I, like I alluded to in the conference, I said scientists love data. So if you have data that you can work with, then good. Now, unfortunately, we we just have that that video image that's a relatively short one and it's been so scrubbed of, of metadata that it's not like the the one you saw in Aguadilla. But right. uh, there's some but, data yeah. there, but yeah, there's like you know the, yeah. the plane speed is yeah. blurred out and some other things, which is probably yeah. for because they don't want people to know the speed of the planes right. and all that, even though it's probably easily found out. Yeah, and then so you have the you know some testimony from uh, the nature of the, the again. Uh, you have we, we started interviewing pilots. Uh, we stopped with uh, Colonel you know Slate, uh, who was over in the other aircraft, and we talked with uh, you know we talked with uh, the radar operator Kevin Day, and we talked with I think I can't remember the number of people that that we actually interviewed, but it was a good number to the point where we started to get and collect that data as much as we could. Um, and then we did, like everybody else, go out with FOIA requests to be able to see if we could get more data and information. And we got ships logs and, and various other things. And Robert Powell had started on this like very early. He had, uh, I guess he had read the uh, fighter sweep uh, article and I think that, that got him intrigued. And then we oh, kind of- yeah, yeah. The, the, the rest internal of military, whatever it was. Yeah. But it, yeah, yeah, an article by somebody that was uh, just had heard this yeah. from a few people and talked to them. Yeah, and so I, that article, I think it was Paco Chichiri, or if I'm saying that right or not. But anyway, yeah. but anyway, anyway that, that, that led to a little bit of an interest. In, and, um, and then and ultimately, it's just over a period of time, we started getting more and more details. And so we wanted to just document all the, that. And then to take that look at it where you could begin to look at, well, here's an object that, that suddenly drops from let's say 80,000 feet and stops at sea level. Well, what are the physics? What would physics tell you about that? You know, what what would be the uh, the g forces, if you would, that would be uh, that would be implied there? What about the kinetic energy release that you would expect? What about the sonic booms that you would be expecting to hear? Uh, what about the uh, thermal heating going through the atmosphere that you would expect, and and that type of thing? And so. We we began looking at that and and trying to like put that in from a scientific perspective. What can mm -hmm. we write about it? And, uh, Rich, you're breaking up a little bit. Do you have a okay. do you have a do you have a connection there that might be loose or something? So, you know I what? Know. I will um, I will try one thing. I will hang up and call you right back and see if that works. And if not, we'll just we'll just keep on because I can understand you. It's just kind of it's it's I hear this like. Uh, static or whatever in it. So let, let, let's reconnect and then we'll see if it works better if that's all right. Yeah. Okay, okay, let me try it. Thanks. That's what it sounds like when you ring somebody on Skype. What an annoying sound. Is this any better? Are we still staticky or... Yeah, it's still a little bit staticky. Let's, let's just go ahead with it because I, I, I don't want to, you know, I, I can still understand units, no problem. So Any better? No, still doing the same thing. <laughs> well, maybe it'll work itself out. That might be a little better, yeah. 
Um, so we were talking about Nimitz. We were talking about um, why it's important. Uh, we were talking about, we didn't talk about any, um, I saw, I've seen some objections to it, like the, the, the pilots were mistaking something. It's like, really? Five, six, I don't know how many pilots were reporting this. I mean, we don't even know how many were there, actually, because only, what, I think three or four have come forward to actually say anything publicly. Yeah, well, you have, yeah, exactly. So you have, like, there were, like, three sets of two aircraft that went out that day. Okay. And they were, they were just already on patrol anyway. I mean, well, a part of the of the exercise. Yeah, well, yeah. I, and, and you also had a Marine pilot, who uh, Kurth, who actually saw the object uh, when he was flying, uh, or at least he saw something in the water. Uh, so you have that pilot, Kurth, you have, uh, you have um, basically, you know, Fravor, uh, and I don't know his WSO, what, what the situation is with that person. I've not had a chance to chat. And then in the other aircraft, you had Slate, and uh, there's a female pilot. And uh, and the, I think the female, I'm not sure if she started to come out now yet or what. I think I haven't heard anything. Yeah, and I'm, then, I'm behind the curve on this. So, and then you had uh, Slate that was talking about, it. but then you also had the situation where the second uh, group, uh, when when Fravor and his group go go back, um, uh, then there's like two other groups that go out, and it's one of those groups that go out that actually does the, the filming uh, of the object that we see in the, the little clip. So it, it wasn't. Fravor didn't have a camera. I mean, he. In fact, they didn't have. They one of them didn't have the. Uh, Fravor didn't even have the uh, the FLIR camera uh, mounted via the pod. And then there was no no weapon systems. I think if I remember correctly, uh, they didn't have. They don't use weapon systems on that. But um, so anyway, the bottom line is that a lot of people saw it, and then now more and more there's a, a whole variety of the. Uh, the people on board the, the ship that were either in the command council or the command uh, uh, group that actually witnessed it. Um, then you had uh, uh, radar people uh, that that witnessed it, and then you get others that are starting to come forward. So there's a whole slate of those people, I think, out this, this week, or a couple of them anyway, that are willing to go to that Megacon um, that's out there in the – Laughlin, I think. Or yeah, yeah, they're doing that in Laughlin, where the uh, International yeah. UFO Congress used to be. So anyway, there's there's been a number of these witnesses are coming out, uh, and then that's not even the gimbal and the go fast uh, case that was right. over on the the East Coast. And uh, okay, yeah. And so I think Roberts had a chance to chat with someone from that the the ship there, the Robinson, and. Uh, and basically got some information about that one. Uh, and then uh, I think that there's become, there's been something that's a little bit more recent even yet that um, we may be looking into. Uh, and that, I don't know, we should know something in the next eight weeks or whether we're going to actually get access to that. But um, that's going to involve us having access to a lot of information and including witnesses of that event. Mm -hmm. um, so we're we're hopeful that that can be shared with us, and we'll be able to then go and analyze that one a little bit more. But um, 
anyway, some exciting times. I, there's a lot of these incredible cases out there that have that again, the, the, the metadata that we need as scientists to be able to analyze cases and, and learn more about them, you know? Yeah. I had a, a friend asked another question, actually. Uh, did, does anybody know why um, unarmed planes were sent to investigate? I think it's because those were the planes that were closest and in the area. Well, they don't, they don't arm them on military exercises. I ah, mean, okay, because they don't want something, something, yeah, somebody I mean, to do something where, where live ammo is... Uh, is uh, right. You're, yeah. you're going to go through exercises where you you know, might want to do something like attempt to do a, a target you're going to go after, and you don't want to have a real missile launch happen, and now that missile goes and destroys your body. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, an that seems like an obvious uh, answer. I, I don't know why I didn't think of it when he first asked me that. It's like, well, I don't uh, think they want to shoot at each other, so, yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of like what, what you have going on there. Hang on a second. Yeah, I'm a, it, is, it is pretty annoying. I might call you back on the phone just to finish off. Is it okay if I call you on your phone for the last half hour here? Yeah, sure. Okay, uh, let me we'll, try the we'll phone, do and then we'll, we'll, we'll do it that way. It, it, it might take care of all this noise. Okay. Okay, I'll call you right back. There we go. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you okay. hear me okay? Yeah, yeah. The, the fidelity is lower, but we're not getting that, that funny noise, so I think we'll just stick with this for the, for the last 30 minutes, uh, minutes, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. I wanted to talk about a few of the other people that were speaking at the conference because, like I said, I was I was impressed with the caliber of what they talked about. One thing, person that kind of surprised me was uh, Travis Taylor, yeah, um, who talked about uh, what would an alien invasion be like. <laughs> and the funny thing is, he he, he treated it seriously and as a joke at the same time, which I thought was great. <laughs> Maybe you can describe a little bit, you know, who he is and uh, what he talked about to give people uh, that weren't there a little flavor of what was going on. I didn't want to talk to him. It's like I felt if I went up to him, if there was any hole in anything I was going to say, he would have just dismissed me immediately. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Travis is a very unique character. Uh, I think the things that I that I alluded to uh, when I was kind of like introducing him or I might, might have mentioned it, uh, but uh, he was at a, a very young age living here in Huntsville. His father uh, worked over helping to build the Saturn V rocket that put us in the moon. Right. And so he, he, he kind of grew up in, you know, I, I was telling you how I, I was like 13 years old and I, I was influenced by the UFO thing and I carried on with it. Well, he was very much influenced by that at a very young age about that whole space thing and, and stuff. And, and what I picked up from Travis is just how blasted smart the guy is. I've, you have to give him due respect. I mean, he's got two PhDs and three master's degrees. It's not like he's, uh, you know, yeah. you know not like he's, he's any, you know, idiot at all. And if you take a look at the, the level of stuff that he's done, it's pretty phenomenal. He's, he's actually been, overworking on that base he's probably been more with the nasa people he's been overworking on the the, the missile people uh uh so and he's well respected uh yeah and yet and yet here he is he's a guy that that basically has been uh, uh writing science fiction books uh you, if you go up and do a search on travis s taylor you you find out that he's got a huge uh filmography i mean he's been doing films he's 
He's been involved in uh, the Curse of Oak Island on History Channel. He's yeah. He's yeah. currently working. He's, he's currently working with Ancient Aliens, and he's it helped improve that show dramatically and getting it more science oriented than what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's and he he's had his own show that the, that Rocket City Rednecks show, which was great. Yeah, and then the Rocket City Rednecks, which you know you think it, it, it's a hilarious show. It was a funny thing. Yeah. When I first moved here uh, from up in the D.C. area, uh, I that was one of the shows that I latched on to. And I thought, wow, this is just a hoot. And uh, yeah. <laughs> here he is. He's building all kinds of like submarines and building uh, just out of common everyday stuff that you can go get at the At the Home the Depot, store. actually. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And so he's, he's doing stuff. It was a fascinating thing. So, uh, you know, this whole alien invasion thing kind of takes you back but if you start to look at its history you'll find out that national geographic there's a did a did a whole episode on alien invasion based on his work along with i think maybe the other writer and they've written a book on it but as he told you in the uh, the presentation this is as a result of his conversation with some like maybe like a colonel or something like that who challenged him when he said about talked about asymmetric warfare and yes. and uh, and he said he made a maybe made a side comment like you know we couldn't handle you know being around in a battle with aliens if you would and so the, he was challenged to go in to see if that could actually happen yeah so the bottom line is that the, that, is the most that, asymmetric that, warfare you could even ever think of right and so he kind of like took it in that regard and built a presentation and this is one he had done some time ago and i guess he decided to share it with us but i thought it was you know very creative and i thought that he did an excellent job he talked about fermi's blunder as opposed to fermi's paradox he talked (laughs) about you know the mistakes that scientists have made yeah and assumptions one at the time when they made them and two based on you know more information we have about exoplanets now Exactly. And and so, you know, I thought uh, he was very direct. He, he didn't mince words. He was pretty, uh, you know, if he, if he disagreed with you, uh, a lot of people like well, the other people that were presenting would be, okay, well, he's challenging us, you know, and, but he was pretty much spot on. And I thought he was just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I, I, I think a lot of Travis Taylor, and I even think more of him now, but, um, uh, uh, but yeah, he's a he's a great guy, and I'm, I'm glad to know him. And he's local, and uh, hopefully, we'll have continued relationship with yeah, him. And- yeah, yeah. The probab- here's part of the abstract: the probability of an alien invasion is, in fact, a finite value, but how big or small, or how small, is difficult to ascertain. Realizing that the probability is finite suggests that at a minimum some preparations or at the very least investigation should be conducted into what an invasion might look like, how we might respond from civil, military, political, and socioeconomic approaches, and what we should be doing now to prepare just in case. (laughs) Each of these concepts will be discussed from a scientific methodology with appropriate calculations and simulations, which he did. And it's funny, uh, I remember the conclusion was, go to a place on the map where there's not a lot of lights. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah exactly you know, <laughs> if you see this I mean, is happening or beforehand go to a place on the map where there's not a lot of lights because um whatever's coming is probably not going to concentrate on those areas yeah 
and, and you know, who's to say, I mean, that, that we can't, I mean, everybody wants to, a lot of the people out there that are doing ufology saying, oh, well, no, they're all peaceful and they're benign and they're thinking about the, like the grays that are in the common literature and everything else. Mm-hmm. You know, are you telling me that there can't be a hostile race out there that's like the coming in the Oumuamua or whatever the heck that object was? And, yes, you did, and, you did mention uh, that. Yeah, and, and that they couldn't have been hostile or, or that they have hostile intent. I mean, we don't know. We, <laughs> we don't know anything. Yeah, the and, assumption, uh, I think, in the past has been if there is hostile intent that they, they would um, destroy themselves first. But uh, he proved uh, throughout his lecture, it's like that's not necessarily true. You can be warlike and still survive as a race. In fact, you'd probably outlive all the other races on your planet if you were a contiguous, you know, um, uh, functioning, warlike, uh, uh, conquering race. Exactly. You know, you stand a greater chase, but a, a chance of, uh, of still existing. But, you know, they also pointed out that there's certain, you know, finite uh, periods of time that people can use their resources on a planet and eventually they choose to go off and leave that planet because they need some sort of resources elsewhere, right? So uh, the, 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 it was fascinating to hear him present, and I thought he did an excellent job with it. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of the presentations, I, I, I hate to put you on the spot, but what's the one that, you know, kind of, I don't know, what what was your favorite or one that sticks with you or uh, that you would like to talk about or let more people know about besides uh, Dr. Taylor's? Because I have a couple. Well, I think, yeah, well, I, I mean, I don't know about your take, but I, I like Dr. Kevin Knuth's uh, presentation. That's quite the one well I like. Well, it, 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 it does a, he did a major reframe for a lot of people's perspective about, you know, interstellar travel. And yeah. uh, he said, you know, I don't and, think and anybody's talking that, about this. And he was right. What he did very clearly was to take and show how, uh, how would we go about doing interstellar travel ourselves? What are the implications of time dilation? And what if you had, you know, you could engage in uh, some relativistic speed uh, types of uh, speeds where you might be going, you know, at a certain rate in terms of the speed of uh, light. Mm-hmm. And and then you would likely want to be nomadic. And he talked about us going out and being nomadic and uh yeah, you can't you would, can't get home for dinner he said to 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 uh coin a phrase euphemistically um by the time you were yeah. gone for you know two you could be gone for two weeks or at least you know or a month and everybody you know would be dead or at least very old so you don't you have but, to you have to forget coming back to your home planet in the way that it is when you left it well exactly and but you know to me that the most interesting thing was that you know okay so here's Here's the situation. Uh, the night before, we talked about what we saw the G-forces being uh, and the speed, if you would, acceleration uh, of the Princeton, uh, the case, the Nimitz case. Right. Well, he, he also looked at where the G-forces or the, the, uh, the accelerations of other UFO cases that are well known. He talked about the Bethune case. He talked about the JAL, the, the Japanese right. airline case. Uh, and he talked yeah, and ex- a little bit about Extrapolated from things. those? Yeah. And then he extrapolated from that to show you, okay, well, if you could go those speeds that are being recorded by these objects, you could use just those speeds and be, at, you know, 
Beetlejuice, or or you could be a, or in the Orion Nebula, or you could go to like you know some of the, the the galactic center, or you could be on the other side of the galaxy in a ship time of just months, or even less than that, you know. Yeah. And so you know the point being is to the to the people aboard the ship traveling at the speeds that are reported by the objects that we see here that you could conceivably be there in short order and uh, that would be the ship time that was eye-opening because i think yeah. that you know we everybody we, always we says oh it's going to take so long to get there it's like yeah it is but not for the people that are going <laughs> yeah it, it, exactly and if they're going at the rate that we see these objects being reported then guess what you know they could be there in relatively short order. So the whole notion that we have where, oh, it's too far away and you can't do that. And, uh, well, if you do have craft that are performing like they are right now, then I'm sorry, that, that equation is not accurate. Or that our belief is not accurate and they can do that. And I think that that's where that was eye opening to, I think, a lot of people. And, yeah, uh, very. And, and the complexities of even us just being able to to think about how will we do that and uh, the, what are the problems there. But wow, that it, it it was a fascinating presentation. He deserves accolades for what he did uh, in his presentation and how just you know how eye opening it was for a lot of people in the room to see that. Yeah. I'm still not convinced 100% of the ETH, but I'm also radically interested when somebody says, well, this is how it could be done. Because the last I'd heard of this was the inflation theory implications for interstellar travel or something like that, that Hal put off uh, John Alexander and a few other people contributed to that was in the, uh, I think it was a journal of the British Interplanetary Society about 10 years ago. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that, and that wasn't that wasn't actually relativistic speeds. That was uh, wormhole jumping through, you know, and you know the, the the power required to create something like that, and you know how it's out of our reach. And but this this was a lot closer to home. And in, in using physics, he said. In fact, Knuth said this: using physics that we understand right now that have been proven. The only mm-hmm. the only problem was finding a way to create some sort of uh, energy supply or some kind of something that would make a some kind of ship go that fast. Um, but he said, well, if you yeah, could well, do then, this, what are the implications? You also heard uh, Travis Taylor and a number of them talk about the fact that if you, if, with our current technologies, if we have these things, there's problems with shielding. And, and Yeah, that was know, the other thing. You, yeah, you run into a piece of dust at, at 50% of light speed, it just makes your ship explode like an atomic bomb. <laughs> exactly. It's, you know, and so that was eye-opening, a cosmic ray that you bump into would would do damage. And so, I mean, you know, that it has to be thought about. And uh, mm-hmm. I thought he did a good job of helping a lot of people to understand it. So I was very excited about that. That that was that was a very eye-opening presentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I th- I think apart from that, uh, just the and uh, when you do release these videos or recordings, I I really do hope that some of these uh, panels or round round roundtables or whatever with the questions after are, are included because the the level of the people in the audience they they had questions I've never heard at a UFO conference very scientifically based questions and uh, I oh, think yeah, yeah the, interesting the, to hear thinking, those questions. Yeah. And the way they were answered, yeah, I mean, it, it, it created a lot of debate uh, with the panelists at a lot, uh, in a lot of cases. Yes, it did. And so, uh, and that was good, too, because I wanted, you know, if we had scientific debate going on in the room. And that, 
that's that's what I was hoping for that we would have you know some collaboration discussion and you know a little bit of debating going on and it was it was interesting to to see that and uh, to hear that so yeah it was it was very very good and my hope is that that other scientists will hear what's being said because uh, I'm more wanting them to hear about you know they understand some of the, the complications and the things and the challenges as opposed to, you know, your typical everyday UFO enthusiasts, you know? So, uh, yeah, who might not un- understand even the, the, the responses to the questions or take them out of context and then want to generate and generalize them. Yeah. So, well, I heard uh, some of that around the table, like somebody would say yeah. something. And then of course, whoever's pet theory would say, well, that's completely in line with my pet theory of whatever. And I was, I would think and go, no, it's not. That's actually not what the person said. <laughs> so that actually leads yeah, to, and go ahead. No, I was going to say that that's precisely my concern with having the, uh, I don't say it, the, the non-scientists, if you would, in the room, because of that very thing. Uh, there are so many people that have their own little pet theories and, and they do look for that and it's, they use it to their advantage to be able to put forward and speculate even more. And, and that's not, they're not even accurately understanding the science behind this. And so that's, that's a concern. And, uh, and we see that all the time in, in the UFO media world where, uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm saying that people will take something and then they'll, generalize it and it's it's a problem it's a very big problem that leads into my one of my questions here and you sort of answered it but the the question was what can serious researchers do to counter the media take on these subjects you know and how and how they're covered and how do you think that a good researcher and good research can be sustained in a public and scientific forum so that you can get rid of the sensationalism and unfounded speculation and all that or at least minimize it how do you get people interested in it in a serious way and sustain that because you know the gim- I mean the, this video came out. There was a the New York Times article, and there was kind of a bump of interest and some seriousness, but that's kind of trailed off. And you know how how do you see kind of sustaining this um, this uh, a, a serious take on the subject? Well, you know, I think what we're trying to do is to be able to get to the point where we can actually have a journal and have things published in a in a proper scientific way, and and that would allow us to have a forum in a scientifically peer-reviewed kind of way and, you know, have things published in a, in a respectable journal. Uh, and and that gets us away from having to rely on the, the media, which does their own shtick. Yeah, uh, they're going to do whatever, uh, yeah. Yeah, and so we're, we're trying to get the conversation over to something like that as opposed to, um, you know, the, the typical media. I think once we get that, once we get that accomplished, and and, and we'll, then we'll see definitely more engaging, uh, con- more scientific papers that are on the subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's that's one way. Number number two, it's it's an attempt to try to be able to get um, kind of like maybe the respect of more scientific writers, if you would. Uh, we did our best to be able to get respectable writers to attend. Uh, and I say respectable, meaning that we were looking for more science-related stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if we can help 
have them help us out to be able to get those kind of conversations going and those kind of outlets, then maybe that's going to help us too. So we're, we're kind of feeling our way through this, Greg, trying yeah. to figure out what's the best, best approach. It's not like, it, you know, that there's any magic to this, or like it's been done before. I think Heineck and them were trying to do that back in the early days when they had the invisible college and, Heineck was trying to get, you know, this thing out and being treated scientifically. And, 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 you know, if you look at Stanton Freeman, he was always going to let, you know, lectures at universities and, and trying to also speak at, you know, scientific forums. So we've been trying to do that. And I think we're going to continue to try to, to make this as, in, you know, as scientific as we can. Yeah. Uh, and then to try to follow, the the guidelines and the procedures of like mainstream science uh with again peer-reviewed articles and journals and mm. and doing it that way and and maybe that will help change the uh the direction of ufology and oh, uh yeah. and then you know we have to even look at the, the the term ufo and is the terminology for that beneficial or a distraction yeah, I noticed uh, that was uh, mostly avoided during the conference as well, including in the title. Yeah, we uh, we intentionally thought about that, and you know, how are you going to get base personnel out there to come to a, a a session you have off the base? Well, maybe you don't want to call it UFOs. Maybe you know, you know, because that means something to a lot of people that you don't. They they look at it maybe as a carnival, or maybe they think think of it in terms of you know stuff they see on TV and. So it would be better to have it called something like AAP or anomalous aerospace phenomena, yeah. and then that. Even would though people say, "Well, you know, actually, what they're talking about there." <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. And well, you know, how much you know, can you do? So. Right. Yeah. I, well, I, anyway, so that's go ahead. that's where we were trying to go. Yeah, I understand, uh, and I respect it, and I think it's a great effort. Uh, I had another question. How close can the scientific method get to figuring out something that's not repeatable, do you think? It's not repeatable on demand. I created a T-shirt, actually, I sh- sell on my site. It says repeatable, but not on demand. <laughs> so how do you think yeah, science, okay. science handles something like that? Well, I mean, science studies and has observations of things. I mean, you know, observation is real critical. I mean, how do you repeat a Higgs boson or how do you repeat something else? Uh, and, and, and how do you repeat an Oumuamua when it comes through once? Right. It doesn't mean that science doesn't pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. Right. So you exactly. know, science should, would, would get data and collect it and analyze it and see what they can come up with. But, you know, it's not like you have a whole bunch of, of, of Oumuamuas that are racing through the interstellar space and coming near us. So the whole notion of repeatability in science, uh, that's maybe good for a lab work, but that doesn't mean that science can't analyze and look at the data and come up with some sort of like uh, ideas about what it might be and, and that type thing. So you have the same kind of thing with a phenomenon that's going on around us that, um, which by the way, if you think about it, it's somewhat repeatable in the sense that we keep having observations of them. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so it is repeatable in that regard, and maybe you could look at it from the context of uh, some sort of like uh, science, and and that's what I think. You know, when you take a look at even Lou's presentation, he the A tip study came up with conclusions that these things seem to have vertical lift 
you know, uh, they can defy, uh, they can go straight up in the air, and that's pretty observable. We've known that. They seem to be able to do stealth kinds of things, and, you know, one minute you might have a radar, next minute you don't have a radar. Uh, one minute it looks like it might physically be there, next minute it might not be. And so there's a the classification system that he's got right there is kind of interesting because then you might be able to take and help us to, we can look at some of those maneuverability kinds of capabilities and, and the fact that they can hover and they don't seem to do that and, and start to study it. You know, why is it that a vast number of these things don't uh, make any sound? Uh, so what can we do to replicate that? What, what does science say about how you could do that? Yeah. And, and so, you know, again, it's science engaging. It doesn't have to be a repeatability experiment in a lab. Mm-hmm. I was down on science for quite a while. It's like, well, what are they going to find out? But the thing is, doing nothing about it is basically what's happened up to now. We're not nothing, but next to nothing. And when there's, you know, right. instead of five people interested in it that have to keep their mouths shut, you've got 500 people interested in it, communicating with each other. That, to me, is a glimmer of hope and an avenue of uh, of uh, learning and, and possible discovery. So. That's why I really wanted to go to the uh, SU uh, conference, the first one. That was the very first one, right? Yeah, we've not had this before. We, it was our first attempt, and it was. Uh, I just made a decision that said, "Hey, look, I want to have one here," <laughs> you know. And uh, I, I told my buddies in SU, I said, "Well, I'm going to have one, and you can either join me on it, <laughs> and you can make this, it, or I'm going to just go and have it anyway." So, uh, <laughs> I like that. I like that you just said I'm gonna just gonna go ahead and do it instead of looking for anybody's approval or if you're sending it through the committee yeah. or anything. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I, look, I mean, I, I, I'm I'm independent. I'm still able to do what I'm going to do. And if you, if SCU doesn't want to sponsor it, so be it. I'm still going to go ahead with it. I, I've been wanting to have it here, and I'm going to have it. So that's kind of like where I was and, you know, and SCU of course was wanting to have it too and help me out. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I really appreciate all the support that I got from, uh, we just made it an SCU conference, but bottom line was that it was, it was going to happen anyway. And so, uh, and I'll probably have another one here and we'll, uh, we'll try to figure out whether it needs to be bigger, whether it needs to be the same size, whether I need to get it in another place, uh, and that's what I'm going to try to like look at. And uh, I think that we're going to have a conversation here in the next week or so with the board and uh, other people and to see what they think about it and uh, go from there. All right. Well, I wish you the best luck and I'll keep paying attention. I'd, l- I'd love to come again next year. And once again, thank you for the, uh, the tour around the Redstone uh, uh, facility. That was amazing seeing some of those things in the old, old uh, rocket test uh, stands and, I get and and the museum too. I went there later with a couple other people just to see the 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 Saturn V there and the one in the building. Um, sorry, I couldn't join yeah. you on Thursday when you were having a party there, right underneath the Saturn V hanging from the ceiling there. Yeah, it was it was it was fun, uh, and I'm I'm glad that I was able to be able to escort you around the base and show you the Redstone Arsenal and the history of NASA. You know, I mean, it, it's pretty neat to go down there, wasn't it? To that uh, Redstone rocket test stand where. Uh, Lon Brown was actually there and the, testing the, the rocket that put Alan Shepard up. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was neat to see that. And, and I, I was happy to escort you around and show you that and give you a little bit of a glimmer on uh, on the Marshall Space Flight Center as well as the uh, 
Redstone Arsenal, the Army side, and show you where the FBI is moving down here from Quantico. So. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. We, you drove by this giant f- area that was fenced in. It had a lake in there and all that. And you said, oh, that's where the FBI is mm-hmm. moving. And we thought, what? They're moving their headquarters from Quantico to uh, to uh, Huntsville, Alabama. Yeah. So I'm hoping to bump into Fox Mulder and Dolly and, you know, and the rest of them. And, uh, and, uh, <laughs> right on the same facility. That was kind of amazing. Yeah. Not too far from where you work, it seemed like. Oh no! It was. It's very, very close to where I work. I can walk to it. It's just a short distance. Uh-huh. So I mean, it, it, it's going to be fun, and I'm enjoying it. And uh, I told I, think, I told know, Rich that I was going to give him a, a really good uh, review on Yelp for Rich's Redstone tours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, it, it's pretty wild. In fact, you know, here's something interesting. I got a uh, I got contacted by a, a gentleman who is I guess in September there's like about 50 veterans of the war uh, that are going to be coming over and they want to hear about UFOs after huh. and so so now I'm going to be doing I guess a UFO presentation in September for a group of 50 veterans who are coming over and a lot of them were in the navy and so they have an interest in this navy case and so oh yeah could be rather interesting interesting to experience that because you know what's going to happen if they're that strongly interested in it they're going to like well let me tell you about yeah. the time that i saw this or that. <laughs> exactly yeah that that's that yeah that stuff happens and something like anybody else any any person as soon as a subject comes up you get two or three people it's like okay is anybody listening yeah. i really want to tell you about this thing that happened to me so you, yeah, you, you get those I, stories yeah. You can imagine over 55 years how many stories I've heard. I mean, it's just amazing to me. It, it's like, you know, people people will keep it quiet, not talk about it with anybody. And then, you know, when they see that there's like somebody serious and treating it serious, they will tell you some incredible stuff. Tonight, even, you know, earlier today, I was talking about it and I had the same thing. Two different people that came up and started telling me, well, my dad worked at Foreign Technology Division at Wright Patterson Air Force Base when you were there. And, huh. uh, Oh really? Well, you know, and, and then uh, we knew all about the blue book thing, and then I talked to somebody else, and they said, "Oh yeah, I, I saw something on da 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 da," and then my dad saw something, and, and and wow, and it just goes on and on and on, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I've I met uh, I've said this before on my show, but uh, when I'm speaking at uh, conferences, you you know, generally you try and sit at your little table and sell your books and talk to people who want to talk to you. Most of the conferences I've been, all of them actually, people will come up to me and say, "Can I tell you about something that happened to me?" Like, yeah, sure. And they mm-hmm. don't want to buy a book. They don't want to do anything. They just want to tell you what happened. And when they're done, most of the time they don't say, "You know, what do you think it is?" or anything like that. They say, "Okay, thank you," and they leave. They just wanted to tell somebody yeah. that wasn't going to laugh at them or look at them funny. Right. Right. And so uh, that, it, that's good enough for a lot of people, actually. Exactly. But it, it it is amazing, and I've just heard so many incredible stories. And uh, I think if you show that you're truly interested in, and you're not a, like a, a kook and uh, anybody else, that they'll they might open up a little bit and trust you a little bit. And uh, yeah, and the fact that I I'm still working in the military, a lot of people you know respect that, and and they think, well, okay, I can open up to you because you're. You know, you've got a clearance or something of that nature, and so I'll have that kind of experience as well. Mm-hmm. And so, it's it's pretty pretty eye opening uh, for me to have this experience. I didn't, 
I never thought that I was going to be in the military, but, you know, working in a military setting, I, I would say, but, uh, but I am, and, and that's been really interesting. Hey, Rich, uh, I hope we can talk again before the next SCU yeah. conference, which I will definitely uh, uh, come to. I, I loved the first one. I thought it was a great step forward. It totally surprised me as uh, the, the seriousness of it. I mean, b- people had a sense of humor and all that, but the seriousness with which it was treated, I know a lot of people there think that's, that uh, we're dealing with another civilization from another planet. That's fine. But the, the point was that they did not express that when they were talking about the data, which I thought was great. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, well, thank, thank, uh, thanks for your insight, Greg. I mean, that, it's very important to me to get that kind of feedback on it. And you were an attendee; you got to hear it, and you saw that we were trying to make this thing as serious as possible, but mm-hmm. you know, have a little bit of humor. Yeah. And we didn't; we're not not getting into the alien thing as much as focusing on the craft themselves. And 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 you know, we'll often get people who are looking at us and saying, "Well." Gee, if you you know you're you're like the nuts and bolts people, and that's all you really care about. That's not actually true. Uh, many of us have uh, like beliefs that extend beyond that, and we are interested in that. But mm-hmm. but we but well, you know, I will talk to you guys about that at some point because that that's my interest as well. It's just that the part of me that is that is the education is lacking is what I saw this last weekend. Yeah. And so, again, to me, it's like if you focus on one thing, then you can get kind of smart on that one thing, right? You mm-hmm. can get yeah. smart on everything. Yeah. So let's, let's get focused on the one thing. And, and, oh, by the way, if we can make some sort of, like, positive improvements or get some sort of direction, then let's do it. Right. If, if we're, we come up and say that there's nothing to it, we can't get it, well, let's be honest about that, too. But ultimately, it's about getting some answers to something and not just sitting around twiddling our thumbs <laughs> and all talking about, well, it could be this, it could be this. We could sit here and hypothesize for the rest of my life and not right. get anywhere. Right? <laughs> all right, Rich. Thanks but, so much for uh, spending a yep. couple of hours with me and being patient with some of my questions here. Um, <laughs> uh, no, no problem. Sorry about the technical problems, too. Yeah, it's okay. Neither of us could control that. It's no, it's nobody's fault. But we fixed it. I mean, it, it, as long as people can understand what you're saying and there's not too much noise in it that annoys me, I don't I don't really care. As it, Just be intelligible, you know. Let's talk again soon, whether it's on the show or not. At least keep in touch. I, I was so happy that you uh, uh, reached out and got in touch with me right before the conference. It was uh, uh, helped quite a lot. And like I said, I enjoyed it immensely. And thanks so much. Well. Thank you, Greg. Have a great evening, and uh, thanks to all your listeners for being patient and all that stuff like that, and keep up the great work, by the way. You too. Um, So uh, you wanted Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum. That's what I'm going to play. And uh, Yeah. Yeah. Can you hear it? Wait, let me turn it up. There we go. All right. (laughs) All right, Rich. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon. All right, Greg. Have a good evening. You too. Thanks.